A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And in honor of the um, upcoming um, uh, International Holocaust Day, 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz by the Red Army, so everyone's talking about all these world leaders coming together, and Yerushalayim is full of traffic, and it's hard to get around because Putin and all kinds of other famous people are here. So we'll talk a little bit about something um, on that angle, not directly related, but in that uh, general field, talk about President Roosevelt and what was going on with him and the Jewish people, his relationship with the famous Reform Rabbi, Rabbi Stephen Wise, which is a topic that everyone's somewhat familiar with. Um but no one ceases to be amazed and interested in hearing more about it, so it seems, anyway. So we'll try talking about that a little bit. President Roosevelt was, was uh, you have to understand, the, his relationship with the Jewish people has to be seen in context of who he was as a person and his presidency. So he, as a person, he came from a very aristocratic background. He grew up in Hyde Park, New York, uh, his ancestors came over on the Mayflower, very wealthy New York family, very, um, the upper, upper realms of New York, uh, society. He went to Harvard, he was in Columbia, lived in New York City, very wealthy, very well connected. His distant cousin was the pre, was a, was a previous president of the United States. And he, he acts, you know, acts like that. He was like a very princely uh, personality, as much as you can in American society. American society never had a class system, but um, he was a he had a very regal bearing to him and very commanding bearing to him, and it definitely was related to his background. By the way, Jan Karski, who was the famous uh, Pole, who who spread the word about the final solution in the West. He was a hero of the Polish resistance and also a very close friend of the Jews and who single-handedly tried to stop the Holocaust and dedicated his life to it to a certain extent. Um, who is quite some interesting books about him. 
and he he met Roosevelt and he was interviewed about it in his later years and he speaks about meeting Roosevelt and he said he, when you walked in to speak to him it was like speaking to the king of humanity he was so he had such a presence that's what it was to to just be in the president the presence of Roosevelt which helps to explain a little bit about how people like Wise were swayed by him. We'll get to that uh, soon. Anyways, in in the in the context of his presidency, he he's in the process of saving, or at least people are led to believe he's saving the country from the throes of the uh, Great Depression uh, with his New Deal, and he's a hero during World War Two. He's the one who's going to defeat. And save the world from Nazi Germany. He's the ultimate hero, the ultimate leader, and and that's how he's seen by most of the United States, and definitely by the Jewish community. The Jewish community in the United States literally worships Roosevelt. Uh, they used to say there's an old Yiddish saying of those days by the Jews in in New York that there are three Welts, there are three worlds. There's Die Welt. Yennevelt and Roosevelt, this world, the next world, the world to come, and Roosevelt. He's he's one. He's he's up there, and they Jews, American Jewry sees especially the secular American Jewry sees liberal, but even the religious Jews. It's the truth at that time sees liberalism um, as a kind of religion, and liberalism then should not be confused with what it means today, which today, you know, you say that word in certain circles and in certain religious circles in America, and it's like almost like a a bad word. In in those days, liberalism meant freedom of religion to these people. It meant they ran away from Tsarist Russia and the oppressive, repressive regimes that they were under, and here they were allowed to live their life as they wanted. They had opportunity, they had economic opportunity, they had freedom, they even had religious freedom. And and therefore, liberalism and democracy and the Democratic Party, which represented that to many of them, was the ultimate, was, was, was a, in, in a certain way, a new religion. Um, Jews are very often socialists. They are often pro the workers' rights, the unions, the textile workers in New York. Well, very pro-socialist, very pro-democrat, very much pro the New Deal, which was seen as the way to save America and save the workers and 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 revamp the whole economy. This was something that American Jewry worshipped and was totally into, and therefore Roosevelt, who represented all that, was seen as almost like a godlike figure to these people. You have to understand how much. American Jewry, um, they they saw Roosevelt as their hero. There's a fear of anti-Semitism in America. There's a very strong, um, there is a lot of anti-Semitism during the 1930s. Uh, Henry Ford, the Dearborn Independent, was his newspaper where he espoused lots of anti-Semitic ideas. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was European, classic European anti-Semitism originating from Russia and exported to France and Germany and other countries is actually published in installments in the Dearborn Independent. Father Coughlin, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, is one of the uh, biggest and most successful talk show hosts 
on the new medium of radio in America with loads of listeners, and he's outright anti-Semitic. And there's the American Firsters Movement, which is essentially a patriotic movement. And Charles Lindbergh is the hero, who's the big American hero, who made the first solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927. He was an American hero. Um, the ultimate celebrity of that time, along with Babe Ruth, but Babe Ruth was not part of the American Firsters Movement, but Lindbergh was, and he, and he, um, and he, you know, is pro, the American Firsters are America first, right? We're not getting involved in European wars, we're not getting, America is before everyone, everywhere else, and they want to make America great again, and they don't want to be involved in Europe's wars and Europe's problems, and they have a slight anti-Semitic twist to them also. Not only that, but to top it all off, there's what's called the um, American Bund, Bund, not the Bund, the Jewish Socialist Bund is a different story, but there's the American Bund or the German-American Bund, and I forgot the exact name, but essentially it was the American Nazi Party. There's a fellow by the name of Fritz Kuhn, who was the head of this party, and they were outright fascists, outright Nazis, under the guise of American patriotism, and the zenith of the Bund's activities was a rally at Madison Square Garden in New York City on February 20th, 1939. You're talking about months before the war breaks out. 20,000 people attend this rally, and Kun speaks about, criticizes President Roosevelt. All these people are anti-Roosevelt. These, these movements are very rightist, very conservative, very Republican, and very isolationist. And, and Roosevelt, as we're going to discuss, was moving towards invention, in, interventionism, uh, towards the end of the 1930s, and of course in 1940 itself, 41, and and um, and and he's he's represents to to these people he's defending the Jews and he's on the Jews side and the Jews worship him, and they this this Fritz Kuhn he calls during his speech um, he calls President Roosevelt Frank Rosenfeld, and he calls the New Deal the Jew Deal. And that was, he got other nicknames. Uh, and, uh, Roosevelt was called Jewsevelt by some. Um, when they finally entered World War II, they said Roosevelt, the president's Roosevelt fighting this Jew war. In other words, he was seen in the Jews' corner by many, by many across the American scene. And in fact, by that Madison Square Garden rally, which became legendary in itself, by the way, there's a, a fantastic short documentary just put out like a year or two ago very interesting um about this rally it was it was filmed then live and it's uh, very interesting called i think it's called a night in the garden um you can look it up online and um and he and at this supposedly uh, so legend goes that either is this rally or some other demonstration in new york city i don't remember which one it was but the new york police department got in touch with meyer lansky the famous jewish gangster and said, look, you know, we've had our disagreements in the past, but neither of us won a Nazi rally in New York City, so the police can't stop it. The police have to actually protect it because it's a freedom of speech and a freedom of gathering together, protected under the First Amendment of, of protest. 
so we can't do anything about it, but we'll look the other way if you and your gangster buddies beat up a few of these Nazis. And supposedly that's what happened. I, I tried looking up before, I couldn't find, but uh, I, I seem to remember reading that at some point, which is a funny aspect of American Jewish history as well. But getting back to Roosevelt, the yeah, that seeing all that in context that Roosevelt is seen on the Jews' side and all the isolationists and the American firsters and for sure the American uh, Bund, this, this German fascist Nazi party, whatever it is, is anti-Roosevelt and they look at him as the one who's on the Jews' side and supporting the Jews and the American Jewish community have him in their back pocket. Having said all that, now we look as to how Roosevelt himself acted towards the Jews and how the American Jewish community related to him. Now, the in the late 1930s, there's a lot of pressure to accept more German Jewish refugees. You have to understand, before the war starts, there's no talk of the final solution. The final solution is a story from 1942 and on, in the middle of the war. There's no talk of of bribing the Nazis, of, of all that. All that type of rescue work comes much, much, much later. The whole discussion at this point is immigration refugees. From where? Not from Poland, because Poland is an independent country at this point. It's from Germany, right? And when we talk about Roosevelt and the American government's policy towards the Jews during the time of the Holocaust, we have to separate the issues. There's the issue of refugees and immigration. That's number one. Number two, which comes much, much later, is the ransom and bribery issues. And number three, which comes even later than that, is the idea of bombing the railways to Auschwitz, which comes towards the end of the war. We have to, it's important to understand these are three different issues, and the attitude toward each one is, 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 has to be judged separately. And not only that, but the chronological sequence of events has to be understood in that context, because the refugee and immigration situation starts in the 1930s with German Jewry, and it continues on during the war, whereas the other two... Um, are are um, are uh, are much later. Now, so you have an issue here that there's a lot of pressure to try to get more German Jews to be able to immigrate. They can't get to America. They're trying to leave Nazi Germany, and they can't get to America. So we're talking about German after March 1938, also Austrian Jews, and there's a lot of pressure on lead Jewish American leaders like Stephen Wise, who's this famous and renowned Reform Rabbi who's essentially the leader of American Jewry. He's one of the leaders of the Zionist movement in America. He's one of the leading personalities on the American Jewish scene, and he happens to be close to the president. He's a friend of President Roosevelt, and he knows him very well. Wise lives in New York, and, they, and they, he knew Roosevelt, and uh, he considers himself a close friend of the president, and a lot of pressure on him at this point and at later points to influence the president at to allow more immigrants to come, allow more refugees to come from Germany. Now, one of the things that comes up that Wise procrastinates and other American Jewish leaders push off pressuring the president is the election, the presidential election of 1940. And the presidential election of 1940 was one of the most important elections in American history, presidential history. And, and, and the Jewish community's decision, or the leader's, or Stephen Wise's decision, not to pressure Roosevelt before that is because of the the uh, the uh, the importance 
uh, or the seriousness of the election 1940s. The first time in American history that someone was breaking the unwritten rule of the uh, Constitution that was just a precedent sent by George Wa- set by George Washington not to run for a third term. There was nothing illegal about it. And Roosevelt decided that he's running for a third term. And that was a huge move. And people didn't like it just because it was breaking from precedent. The American people are very traditionalists. And they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't see this as extent. He won by a much smaller margin than his previous two elections. That's a electoral fact, and that was that was the first the first issue with the election. The second one was much more fundamental. Was is America going to remain isolationist, separate from the European war? To remember that 1940 is already after World War II begins in Europe. September 1st, 1939, it starts with the invasion of Poland. Nazi Germany is waging a war of aggression in Europe, and America is isolationist. They are not support. Not only are they not joining the war, but there's an arms embargo. They're not allowed to sell. Not even not even give weapons. This is before lend-lease, way before lend-lease. This is even before what's called cash and carry. Even to sell weapons to England uh, was illegal at this time. Really isolationist. Or should America move towards intervention? And everyone knew that Roosevelt was pro-intervention. As I said, the anti-Semites were saying it's because of the Jews that they're influencing him to be interventionist. And he and uh, and the American Firster movement and the Republican Party was anti-intervention, right? When it would come up the vote uh, for Lend-Lease in March, in March 1941 in Congress, then it was divided along party lines. Most Republicans in Congress voted anti-lend-lease, not not to declare war, but to lend-lease, to just loan uh, weapons to uh, money and weapons to to England and the Soviet Union. Um, and um, and um, so that was the question, isolationist or intervention. And of course, the New Deal was always uh, an issue of contention. There were, the um, you know Roosevelt still believed in the New Deal, even though the Great Depression had not been solved yet. Um, it was improving, but there had been another downturn in 1937, 1938, the Dust Bowl, which I'm not going to get into. But but there was a downturn in the economy. Now it was back up again, but still it was a contentious point for the election. The continuation of the New Deal and the New Deal programs essentially was a lot of government intervention in the economy, which. The Republican Party was still a laissez-faire type of uh, government that, uh, still from the Coolidge era, that did not did not see uh, see government intervention into the economy as such a positive um, uh, thing. So the and they're they're on the you know they're on the brink of becoming more interventionist. Uh, Lend-lease is right around the corner, and then that's eventually followed by active intervention. And there's a lot of public sentiment against it. So Wise, Stephen Wise, what he felt was a wise decision, he wisely decided not to do anything to pressure the president um, to accept more refugees. That is not exactly the time that you're going to pressure the president, hey, take in another 100,000 German-Jewish refugees or whatever it is above the quota system. Let's get him elected. Let's support him. Let's not rock the boat with the refugee issue. We're not going to go against him publicly. Let's get him in office, and when he's in office, everything will be all right, because then he'll do whatever we ask him to do, because we also helped him get elected. And what happens? He gets elected, and by then, Wise sees him as, as beyond criticism. 
why sees him as as almost a godlike figure that you can never he's just fawning over the president he can't he can't uh, de- de- criticize him he can't pressure him roosevelt who's a brilliant individual he senses that and he uses it to his advantage. He, uses, he sees that Wise is the most powerful Jew in America, the American Jewish leader. And he sees that Wise is not going to pressure him too much and is too overawed by him. So he uses it to his advantage and by playing around uh, um, with that, with that uh, um, leverage. Um, so, so the... The next thing to understand with as far as the refugee issue is concerned is is what's another overlooked fact is that there there what's very often quoted is the Evian conference Evian conference it's a, a city in 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 France which which uh, there was a conference about refugees over 30 countries attended and none of them wanted to take in refugees um Definitely not the United States above their quota. The Australian representative, Mr. White, I believe his name was, he said, uh, Australia doesn't have a racial problem, and why should we import one? In other words, he believes in the racial theory of, of Nazi Germany, and there's no reason for him to bring it into... By the way, they did have a racial problem with the Aborigine population, but I'm not going to get into Australian history at this point also. But he definitely didn't want Jews in the country. So... What's often overlooked about the Evian or Evian conference is that it took place in July 1938. Why is that important? Because Kristallnacht took place in November. It's very likely that had the Evian conference taken place after Kristallnacht, we can speculate, and obviously speculation is dangerous, but we can speculate that the responses might have been slightly different, especially a place like the United States, which cut off diplomatic relations with Germany, withdrew their ambassador in because of Kristallnacht. In other words, they took Kristallnacht very seriously. Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, visited Nazi Germany in 1940, and Hitler tried to impress him. America was still neutral in 1940, but they already had severed diplomatic relations in the formal sense of having an ambassador following Kristallnacht. So the... The um the um that's that's what's happening as far as refugees are concerned. Now now um Wise's relationship with Roosevelt remains close throughout the war, and Wise's leadership in the American Jewish community remains strong throughout the war. And he essentially protects the president. Wise's priorities were as follows. Priority number one is the president winning the war, following the president of the United States policies. Number two, he also believes in Zionism and the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. And number three, his third priority was rescue, rescue of the Jewish people as much as that possible. And his priorities went in that order. So it's not that he didn't care about rescue altogether, it's that he had his priorities. And he sacrificed Zionism for protecting the president, and he sacrificed rescue for both of that. Um, so that was that was a major issue because that was the ticket into the president was through uh, Stephen Wise, and the State Department wasn't being helpful a- at all in this regard because the State Department was, in a certain way, even 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 more hard to deal with than the president. Very strict in the rules, with a touch of anti-Semitism. It was a very waspy institution, and Cordell Hull and 
two of his undersecretaries, Sumner Wells and Breckenridge Long, were not were not very helpful with the refugee issue. Now, as it happens, Roosevelt himself happened to be uh, personally anti-Semitic, and I go back to his aristocratic bearing and background. People of that strata in American society were generally a bit racist, um, anti-Semitic. You take a look at how Roosevelt related to other minorities in America, okay? His reaction to um, Pearl Harbor is to set up what what the PC way to say it is called internment camps for Japanese Americans. Essentially, if you look at what the type of camps were and see it in its historical context, they were concentration camps. They were not as bad as Nazi concentration camps, but you're essentially taking American citizens and just putting them away, um, you know, millions of them because they were Asian. Um, he he had uh, he had issues with blacks. You know, people often very very often quote about how uh, um, Hitler during the 1936 Berlin Olympics uh, wouldn't shake the hand of Jesse Owens. Well, when Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals as a track star for the United States track team in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, when he came back to America, Roosevelt refused to meet him at the White House and did not invite him to the White House because he was African-American. So he had his issues with Jews also. He was uh, he did not like Jews. There was even, someone told recently, about a, a whole operation of spying on American Jews during World War II. He was definitely scared of, of a, a multitude of Jewish refugees swamping the country, flooding the country with Jewish refugees. He, he did not want that, and he was terrified of that, and it's one of the main reasons he did not want refugees to be able to come in. Um, that was his personal feeling, um, and he and but in his public perception, he was fighting a Jew war, and he's called Jewsvelt, and it's the Jew deal. So it's it's a very interesting um, two two different things going on, a whole dichotomy of what the real relationship with the Jewish people is, and um, the question is, at the end of the day, is what what did it what did it matter? That's that's the that's a, that's a question that 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 um, that we want to ask um, in that to, in, to sum to to sum it all up. So he had his personal issues and he had his policy, and then you have the American Jewish community. Now, the American Jewish community is very diverse. There's a huge gap between the assimil- assimilated American Jews. Now I'm talking about completely assimilated, not even reform, not even. Uh, anything, not, not a Bundist a socialist Jew of the Yiddish theater and not a reformed Jew of German Jewish background, but a total assimilationist. There's plenty of American Jews like that. And then you move the whole gamut of American Jewish life from the full assimilationist to reform Jewry, to secular Zionist American Jews, to socialists similar to the Polish Jewish Bund, to you know, recent immigrants, modern Orthodox, very Orthodox, recent European immigrants. There's a large, diverse American Jewish community and the reactions and relationship between the different uh, groupings within the American Jewish world is is complicated and not a simple, uh, or, or it's hard to also over, you know, to generalize what was the attitude of American Jewry when there were so many groupings within within American Jewry. And, you know, you have the uh, religious Jewry uh, put together Avad Hatzalah. They 
are very belatedly involved in overall rescue activities until you know, they were founded in 1939 until late 1943. In other words, in the majority of the war, they're involved in a very limited scope of rescue activities just for yeshiva guys. And that, and that's, that's, they're, they're open about it. They didn't hide it. This is, they're proud of it. This is, this is something that they themselves documented. And they felt it was a priority for religious reasons, yeshiva guys and rabbis. And then in late 1943, when the final solution becomes so clear, then they say, hey, you know, the pressure, the public pressure uh, becomes very intense on the Vada itself. They start to get involved in overall rescue for the Jewish people in general. So that's a paradigm shift in their, in their rescue attempts and then the way they want to influence and meet with Roosevelt uh, from that point on, takes a whole different direction. Now, they people like the Varatzel don't have connections with President Roosevelt, and they're always trying to go through Wise. And Wise becomes this this key player here who is not really uh, standing up to the challenge of uh, of uh, of what he of what people are expecting him to do. Um, the question is, what could Roosevelt have done? And that's also very often misunderstood. Um, there's this somewhat of a myth that he could have stopped the Holocaust. And that definitely would not have happened. There was no way for him to stop the Holocaust until by the time the West knew about it and had verified the final solution, you know, between 60 and 80% of European Jewry were wiped out already. The ones who were future victims of the final solution were already wiped out. By the time... Anything could have actually been done had he even wanted to, which he probably didn't want to, but had he wanted to, he could not have stopped a lot. What he could have done was very limited. It was allowing in some refugees, perhaps allowing bribery or ransom to take place, perhaps allowing a bombing of Auschwitz. Altogether, it definitely would have saved Jewish lives at some level. And of course, Every single individual, even one Jewish life saved, for sure, 100,000 or 200,000 or 300,000 Jewish lives saved would have been very significant. But um, to stop the Holocaust, that never could have happened either way. So that was a little bit, uh, well, I went over time again, um, about Roosevelt and the Jews and Roosevelt's relationship with the Jewish people during that trying and and uh, challenging time. This was Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to places of interest in Jewish history. You could subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.